think some people want to, you know, some people are, are angry. Some people, you know, want to yell at me. I, I think some people are sad. I think some people are, are confused and want to hear from me. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Thursday, December 8th. Today, Tara Palmieri is here to talk about the chaos in the House Republican Conference and whether Kevin McCarthy can overcome a very big problem screwing with his ambitions. He still doesn't have the votes to become speaker. Tara explains if McCarthy can get across the finish line. And later on, Teddy Schleifer is here to discuss what he learned from interviewing FTX founder Sam Bankman-Fried. And we'll actually hear exclusive clips from that interview about how he messed up, whether he feels remorse, and if he thinks he deserves to go to jail. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting The Gentleman. The new series from Guy Ritchie stars Emmy nominee Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings. Eddie Horniman, played by Theo James, unexpectedly inherits his father's estate, only to discover it's part of a cannabis empire. And Britain's criminal underworld wants a piece of the operation, forcing Eddie to play the gangsters at their own game. Now available only on Netflix. Happy Thursday, everybody, also known as one more day in the winter that is torturing Kevin McCarthy as he tries to become Speaker of the House. I'm joined today to talk about this by Tara Palmieri, who has the goods as usual on the rowdy right-wing caucus within the Republican Party in the House. Tara, how you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, Peter. Of course. I love having you, Tara. <laughs> you have a conversation up on, on Puck uh, with Mick Mulvaney, who was Donald Trump's chief of staff for a time. But before that, he wasn't in, in Congress. He was representing South Carolina's 5th District, which is now represented by Ralph Norman. I feel like we always talk about the district on the show for some reason. Um, and he has some thoughts on, you know, the Tea Party caucus then when he was in Congress versus the MAGA kind of caucus right now that's resistant to McCarthy. But before we get into that conversation, can we just get the latest temperature check on where Republicans in the House are at regarding Kevin McCarthy? Uh, Pulse check. Yeah, he still has five no's and those are the public five no's. They claim to have even more private no's. He cannot reach 218 with five hard no's. They say they are hard no's. Mick Mulvaney thinks that he said that when they had their coup against Boehner, he made them sign some sort of pledge to put some iron in their spine and make sure that when they actually made it into the House floor, they still voted no. That's still different than being publicly a no against Kevin McCarthy. What's the difference between being public on Twitter, on Fox News, and then saying it on the House floor? I think he struggled probably more with getting them to pledge privately when he founded the House Freedom Caucus and tried to take down the former Speaker John Boehner because they were having private meetings about it um, and trying to get them to go public because they failed the first time when they tried to take down Boehner in um, 2013. So these are public no's. I think they will go on the floor and say no to Kevin McCarthy and they say that they will not 
change their mind. I think Rosendale gave the most wiggle room saying only under extreme circumstances. And actually, if Kevin McCarthy can get this one member, Matt Rosendale, who wants to run for Senate in Montana to vote for him, then yeah, he has 218. What do you make of Congressman Andy Biggs from Arizona, uh, who's one of these public five no's? He challenged McCarthy in that closed door vote for just leadership before the official speaker vote lost, but still apparently, you know, garnered a few dozen votes. Um, He's coming out again and saying he's challenging McCarthy. I'm running for speaker to break the establishment. He said Kevin McCarthy was created, elevated by and maintained by the establishment. But it's clear Biggs doesn't have the votes. What do you think he's doing? I think for these people, they just really don't want Kevin McCarthy to be the speaker. And it seems like a personal vendetta almost against him. I don't think he can convince them them otherwise. And the crazy thing is that because the Republicans have such a small majority, just takes five renegades, five saboteurs, as Mark Levin referred to them, to take down McCarthy's bid. And he's got to deal with that. Got five people who just really personally don't like him. They keep proposing other people who are not actually elected officials. You know, Mulvaney mentioned that he had heard Newt Gingrich's name tossed around. Jim Bridenstine, who is the former NASA administrator, was a former congressman. Mark Meadows, another former House Freedom Caucus member, also former chief of staff. Lee Zeldin, who just lost his governor's race and is not running for re-election. So like, I don't understand why the Freedom Caucus keeps throwing out names of people who aren't elected officials. I mean, I know you don't need to be an elected official, be Speaker of the House, but at the same time, it's just like, I don't see those people winning over moderates. And again, the only reason they even have the House right now is because of those moderate wins. So yeah, it seems kind of like they haven't figured out a consensus candidate, but these people really are hellbent on flexing and taking down McCarthy. So just to talk a little bit more about Mick Mulvaney, I think he's been an interesting figure since leaving the White House. Um, he's been critical of Trump, but he's not like reflexively critical of Trump. He's an operator, I guess, is is the best way to put it. He was part of a group that back in 2015 opposed John Boehner as speaker uh, because they thought he was sidelining the Tea Party Caucus or, or the Freedom Caucus then. Something jumped out at me um, that, that he told you about that time. And he said it was policy driven. <laughs> what is it driven by now? Just like, personal animus? Because it doesn't feel like McCarthy, one, doesn't really disagree with anyone uh, on the right about policy, but more to the point, doesn't really have any policy ideas (laughs) at all. (laughs) So why do they don't like, why don't they like him? I think they, that's probably part of it is they just don't think he has enough policy credentials and that he doesn't have enough ideas. And then they also suspect that they can't trust him. That's a really big thing they keep saying that he goes back on his word and, and you know, Mulvaney makes a good point. Like, who can you really trust in Washington anyway? I just think they don't like him. And they suspect that he's not as hardcore as they are. Although, what are they hardcore about anymore? You know, back when it was the Tea Party House Freedom Caucus, you know, it was about shutdowns and it was about spending and this and that. And then when Trump came into power, he was spending like crazy and everyone was just cheerleading from the House Freedom Caucus. Even when Mick Mulvaney was um, chief of staff, there was tons of spending uh, from the Trump administration. And again, you didn't hear a peep until, you know, obviously Biden's president. Then it's like, let's cut entitlements, cut Medicare, Social Security, et cetera, et cetera, things that they wouldn't go near during the Trump years. But I still think there will be shutdowns. I think they will start a fight over the debt ceiling. I think the spending will come back. 
But he's not wrong to say that that has not been their priority for the past four years. Anything, they've become the party of Trump. And that's the difference. They now have an ideological leader. But the weird thing is, is that Trump supports McCarthy. Well, so that's the that's the final thing I was going to ask you. Mulvaney says this um, at the end of your interview with him. Again, I wouldn't go read this on Puck. You asked him, why isn't Donald Trump weighing in on this? The Freedom Caucus are his people. Why is he all in for McCarthy? And you've told me here on this podcast before that the biggest nuclear bomb that could drop for Kevin McCarthy would be Trump coming out and saying, ditch that guy. But Mulvaney says, quote, he likes Kevin. Kevin's not objectionable. Kevin gets the job done. Kevin has been sufficiently loyal to the president. Has he said things against the president? Yes, but most of the president's supporters have. And so basically he's making the point that like, I don't understand what anyone's objection to McCarthy is. Like, even if like people don't like him personally, it feels like as much as I think he's just, he's kind of a bozo, like he's operated a very chaotic Republican party and Republican caucus as best as anyone can. And that seems like the guy you'd want in the chair. Yeah, I think this is really a flex. I think they think that they can't trust him and they want to show that they have the power to get rid of him and they want to make a name for themselves. I'm sure those five love reading stories every single day about how they stand between the next Speaker of the House becoming the next Speaker of the House. And it's a flex, massive flex. The thing is, like, how many chances do they get to shoot at the king? Are they going to be able to shoot down the next person in line who will probably be Steve Scalise, who's really not policy-wise He's not very different than Kevin McCarthy. Does he have a different personality? Do they trust him more? Maybe. I don't see how Kevin McCarthy strikes a deal. And then who knows if he doesn't get the speakership, is he really going to stay in the House? I just want to leave listeners with uh, just a note, which is that if McCarthy doesn't become speaker, this is the second time he didn't become speaker because he was in line to become speaker back in 2015 until he went on Fox and said that thing about how the Benghazi committee was actually a ploy to like sully Hillary Clinton. If you debased yourself in every single way to become aligned with Donald Trump and you get this close and don't get it for the second time, I mean, that might not be something that will go down in like the annals of like high school history books, but in the annals of like political failures, it will be a Hall of Fame loss. Although I'm sure McCarthy probably would say this can be his redemption story. All right, Tara. Well, we will have you back on probably in one week to get the latest pulse check on what's going on in the House Republican Caucus. And you know what? There'll probably be no update that is really that definitive. <laughs> I know. <laughs> the only update will be either more no's or someone folds. Well, everyone go on Puck and read um, Tara's interview with Mick Mulvaney. Thank you so much, Tara. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, Ben Landy asked Teddy Schleifer about his big interview with Sam Bankman-Fried. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The Evening Standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix. Hey guys, it's Peter. When I'm not recording the pod, let's be honest, I'm probably snacking, I get hungry. But when I can steal some moments during the day, I do like to eat healthy. And eating better is easy with Factors, delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. And this is big, no cooking required. 
I recommend the smoothies. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. These are two-minute meals. Fuel up fast with Factor's restaurant-quality meals that are ready to heat and eat wherever you are are pancakes i love pancakes more than waffles more than french toast a couple of my favorites so far the red chili chicken tamale bowl and the smoky bacon and cheddar egg bites i love egg bites discover a wide variety of easy options for the entire day like breakfast midday bites and more no prep no mess meals factor meals are ready to heat and eat so there's no prepping cooking or cleanup needed so sign up and save. Head to factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 and use code powers that be 50 to get 50% off. That's code powers that be 50 at factormeals.com slash powers that be 50 to get 50% off. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy talking with Teddy Schleifer. Hey, Teddy. Hey, Ben. You interviewed Sam Bankman-Fried on Monday for nearly an hour. Uh, That conversation is up on puck.news for people who have not already read it. You asked some fantastic questions, by the way, but I'm especially interested in some of what isn't in the story. Like, what was the process of connecting with him? Uh, Where was he calling or video conferencing from? Um, Was he sitting on the beanbag? Just sort of, what did he look like? How did he seem? So Sam was calling me from a room that I'd seen before in other interviews, undisclosed location. It was a sparse room. Hey. Hey. How you been? It's been quite the month. How have you been? <laughs> I've, had a, I've had a normal month. You want to just jump into it? Let's do it. I think the most interesting thing just visually to me and something I noticed pretty much immediately was Sam was wearing an FTX t-shirt. It was like a navy blue shirt with a football on it. I looked it up afterward. It looked like it had something to do with some sponsorship deal. And and that was interesting to me. Just, you know, this is this is a guy who has been at least by, written out by current leadership of FTX as a complete failure. And, you know, he no longer speaks for the company. And I know, you know, people wearing swag from an old employer is not exactly a war crime, but it does speak to the connection that and, and probably shock that, that he feels that he's wearing a t-shirt now of a former employer. The process, I mean, Sam's been doing a good amount of interviews recently. He and I have a couple years long relationship at this point. I've been annoying him to to speak with him for a couple of weeks once uh, the Andrew Sorkin Festival concluded. He said he was game and we made it happen 8.30 or 9.30 Bahamas time, Monday night. Were you talking to him directly to set that up or does he have like a crisis PR team that's surrounding him that is vetting these processes? Yeah, so so Sam uh, has hired um, a guy named Mark Botnick, who used to work for Mike Bloomberg, who is now doing his kind of crisis crisis communications and, and crisis planning. That someone who is definitely brand new, and you know, as as veterans of veterans of crises know, uh, not uncommon to hire somebody to kind of manage the public facing things. But though though this is obviously an unusual assignment, I mean, the fact that Sam is doing interviews proactively. And, you know, he's doing interviews with me and mainstream journalists, but he's also doing interviews with kind of, you know, pseudonymous, random, popular crypto Twitter accounts. You know, he's done, I think, three or four Twitter spaces with, you know, tens of thousands of people with, you know, names that have ETH and, you know, have no first name or last name in them for like hours. And it's just a very different strategy than the traditional kind of crisis comms playbook, which 
I don't necessarily know that that means it's a bad strategy. I know it is definitely unconventional. By and large, I'm just trying to say what I think happened. And like, that is what it is. I'm not expecting people to say, oh, that's all good then. Like, Sam didn't intend for me to lose money. Mm -hmm. I don't miss that money anymore. Like, that's not how it works. Right. You know, typically the advice you get when you're in the barrel is to shut up, right? And and you've seen kind of the PR establishment, I guess you could say, argue that Sam is making a mistake. But it's clear that he cares a lot about the PR element here. And if you care primarily about the PR or more about the PR than, you know, your typical in-crisis business CEO does, then maybe it's worth it. Maybe it's worth turning the tide in a PR battle, even if that puts you at more legal risk. And I think objectively, you know, it's hard for me to say this because I'm reporting on it, but, you know, as best I can tell objectively, I think the interviews are working in at least in improving his public standing versus, you know, where he sat on, say, like November 10th when everyone thought this guy was an absolute villain. I mean, there's now this kind of infamous Bill Ackman tweet where he said, you know, I believe SBF or something. And, you know, he Ackman backtracked on it. But I think it does show that there are some people who 20 days ago thought Sam was, you know, absolutely Bernie Madoff. Whether they should think this or they shouldn't, I think Sam has convinced some people, um, at least more people, that maybe the story is a little bit more complicated. And I'm not saying that as a defense of Sam. I'm just saying that, like, objectively, I think the interviews are working at least a little bit, the legal risk notwithstanding. Bankman-Fried is an enigma in so many ways. And, you know, you've gotten to untangle some of this, whether he was sincere in his commitments to the philanthropy and politics that he claimed was so important whether that was a smokescreen for his unscrupulous business practices, for the crypto lobbying he was doing in Washington. There is this open-ended question whether he is a criminal or incompetent. And, and he could be both, but it really comes down to whether you buy the explanation Sam has been putting forward in these interviews. This is really the, the subtext that um, he let things get out of hand, that he, he mislabeled or lost track of these billions of dollars. You know, he, he wasn't actively, intentionally embezzling this money. Things just sort of got away from him. I wonder if you feel like you have gotten closer at all to any understanding of who Sam is and, and whether either of those explanations hold more water. Sam is is a is kind of a, a frenzied person. That's obvious from the hair. He's aware of the image he is cultivating with the hair, but like he objectively is doing a lot of things. Obviously, I mean, if you look through the FTX bankruptcy filing or the you know the FTX balance sheets or venture capital documents that have leaked. I mean, Sam was investing in everything from the video game that he happened to be playing when, when he and I were were talking to, you know, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago on this podcast, like he bought a democratic tech startup. You know, he was investing in venture capital firms. Like Sam does a lot of things. The question of incompetence versus fraud, I do think is at the core of at least the public relations battle. I know that like, just because you're incompetent doesn't necessarily absolve you of legal risk. But from a PR question, Sam is essentially arguing, look, I'm doing a ton of things at once. There's this, you know, whole other hedge fund business that I know I technically own, but I wasn't really involved with it. You should go bother the people who are involved with it. I mislabeled things. I'm bad at internal accounting. We should have had a CFO. We should have had a better board, yada, yada, yada. But this was not an intentional Ponzi scheme. And, and, you know, and he bristles at the Madoff comparison, which has come up in a couple interviews, you know, because he's argued that, you know, Bernie Madoff did not have a real business and there was a real business at FTX. So essentially his argument is, I'm incompetent. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Um, but there was no fraud here. And that's going to be a, obviously a key part of the legal question. At a PR level, you could see someone almost believing it, whether they should or they should not. Hey, look, this was just a kid who you know screwed up and had too many balls in the air at once. 
that's cold comfort to people who lost thousands of dollars, but that's the argument. You mentioned um, earlier that, that Sam seemed a little bit scattered in conversation. Among the explanations for his behavior, there has been speculation about drug use among his group of friends and employees. They're living together in the Bahamas. Maybe there's some romantic polycule. I mean, some of this stuff is a little far-fetched, perhaps. Sam seemed to want to put that to bed in his conversation with you. Sort of started to become like a bit of a farce to me was when it started to try and, you know, focus on what some people says like a partying culture at FTX. And like, look, there's a lot of, I'm not a perfect person and I don't even want to cast judgment on whether partying is good or bad. But like, I literally didn't have a sip of alcohol till I was 21. I have about half a glass of hard cider a year. Like, I never get high. Like, it's it just like, for better or for worse, it just like isn't me at all. And it wasn't the company culture at all. He does, frankly, come across as sort of distracted and adult on the page. Um, but I'm curious what your perception was like actually holding a conversation with him in person. Sure. As I was watching it, the interview, I could see like the lighting on his face kind of keep changing. It's subtle, but you can see like the eye movement. And at the end of the interview, I was like, are you like playing a video game there? Or I think I said like, what are you playing? What are you what, what are you playing now, by the way? Oh, uh, I, right now I'm, I don't know, I was, I was playing some storybook earlier, but right now I just found like a fidget spinner nearby. And so I'm just spinning that instead of actually playing anything. So, you know, Sam Eggman-Fried kind of now infamously was like playing, I think, League of Legends during his uh, pitch meeting with Sequoia. But, you know, like Sam clearly, you know, thinks that this helps him concentrate, just the ability to do multiple things at once. Though the irony is this, an, is this was an interview about how he shouldn't be doing multiple things at once, right, effectively. Is Sam like distracted because of drug use or alcohol? No, but that doesn't mean that he's not distracted. And he clearly is staying up very, very late. You know, he's talked about how he, you know, his sleep patterns are unusual. Um, it's kind of like, you know, the Silicon Valley obsession with, with hustle culture, but, but on steroids where you're just doing so many things, trying to take over the world so fast. I think the scale of what Sam was trying to do and the speed at which he was trying to do it does play a role in the question you're asking, Ben, where, you know, I asked Sam his motto or his credo of, of earn to give, essentially that he wants to make as much money as possible, as quickly as possible to do as much good for the world as possible. You know, I asked him, like, did that lead you to be so distracted? Did your ambition kind of ultimately lead you to take risks? In practice, very few things are as large in a positive direction as the biggest negatives are in a negative direction. You know, if we've been talking about, like, the risk here, so to speak, in being of, like, and then at the end of the day, didn't have nearly as much impact as I thought I was going to have, mm -hmm. then absolutely. Like, that is a trade-off I was willing to make. And, like, was absolutely willing to, to risk the business not growing, the lack of great, you know, business growth or, or some of my personal money in exchange for like an opportunity, a chance at, at being able to do a lot more. But if you look at what I think ended up happening, it's incredibly bad. It reminds the good that I was trying to do. And, you know, and he didn't really, I don't think, reckon with the question in a serious way. You know, he was arguing that the downside of screwing up was so big that it would outstrip the upside of you know, earning billions of dollars to give away. But I think that was also a distraction. You know, almost the political and philanthropic things he was doing were taking up a lot of his time and taking up a lot of his, his you know, network's time. And I wonder if that played a role. Yeah, there's sort of a chicken or the egg question at work here too in, in trying to piece together, um, you know, how Sam did or didn't become complicit in his own myth-making. I mean, definitely, as you noted, that the perpetually 
underdressed, lounging on the beanbag, you know, MIT grad persona. That played with the guys at Sequoia. Young white guy from, from MIT. It's very easy to, to understand how he got so much money so quickly. Did he seem contrite to you? Because in his interview with you, and, and, and frankly, other interviews I've seen, I have yet to see an acknowledgement from Sam that while what he did was sort of bad in the general abstract sense, he doesn't seem to have a lot of connection to the individual like mom and pop traders, like, you know, some 23-year-old who's been putting all of his savings at a minimum wage job into crypto to somebody who had their life savings at FTX. I mean, there are people across the world, so many people, countless people who have lost massive sums of money. That's life-changing. It can be life-destroying. I haven't really seen him yet grapple with sort of the enormity of the fallout of all this. So Ben, as, as I was brainstorming questions, I think I wrote out like 50 or 60 questions in a Google Doc. And the first question was one I actually thought of about like two minutes before it started, which was, had he talked to any victims? I don't know if I was like going for a gotcha there. Like, I, I don't think I really was going for a gotcha. I was just genuinely curious. I mean, obviously it would have been like huge news if the answer was like, no. I don't even know if he would have admitted that if it was no. But like, he's the CEO and, and you know, he, he is in the Bahamas. And Sam told me that he talked with some employees and he talked with some, you know, people who had lost deposits online. I think you could argue that he should be doing more kind of listening and more time spent with people who lost money to, to kind of test that question you're asking about. Is he aware of the enormity of kind of the loss here? I do wonder whether or not he is aware this was not like some science experiment gone wrong, right? That like, oh no, you know, the lava didn't flow out of the volcano in my, you know, middle school mock-up that there's like real people here, right? Who, who um, you know, and he says, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, you know. But I think there are a lot of people who, who have watched his interviews and, and felt that like the apologies were almost like performative. Like, you know, he knows what he's supposed to say and it's almost ritualistic. And I'm not necessarily saying that, but like people say that, right? Um, and they've felt like a little flat. And I don't know, I don't know. I mean, like, does, do these people need to see like Sam cry on the couch to feel like he's appropriately contrite? I, I have no idea, but I can tell you how people feel about the interviews, whether or not that feeling is fair or not. Um, I think, Ben, a lot of observers haven't quite seen like the empathy. The one moment where I thought Sam actually was contrite was when I asked about Will McCaskill. Uh, Will McCaskill, for folks who don't know, is sort of Sam's mentor. He's you know maybe a decade older than Sam and is sort of the intellectual force behind the movement called Effective Altruism, which we talked about on the podcast before, which is sort of a, a guiding uh, philosophical belief in Sam's life. And, and McCaskill sort of has been like almost a father figure like to, to Sam. It's probably an overstatement, but not by much. And I asked uh, Sam if he had seen Will's statements basically saying that Sam betrayed him. And obviously he had. And what was that like just to watch your mentor say those things about you? And I'm curious if you've talked with him at all since or tried. I haven't talked with him. And it's... Sam was not looking at the camera for probably 20 or 30 seconds. And it was all starting, and I thought it was a window into the pain that he felt. And it was clear that he, he was felt pain. I don't blame him. I feel incredibly bad about the impact of this on, on EA, on, on him, and, and more generally on all of the things I had been wanting to support, which, like, at the end of the day, like, this isn't any of their faults. And, like, there's still people looking to do great things. This fucked up a lot of their plans and a lot of, a lot of 
plans that people had to do a lot of good for the world. And that that's terrible. It was pain in a, like he had lost something. I'm not trying to psychoanalyze him too much, but there was a sense that the defection from his kind of mentor meant something to him. So that was probably the, the moment where I saw the most emotion. I'm glad you asked him that question. Um, it's truly a fascinating interview. Again, for people who haven't checked it out, it's up on the puck.news website. You can also get more about SBF by following Teddy's newsletter, The Stratosphere, of course. Thanks for coming by and uh, sharing a little bit with us from behind the scenes. You bet. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.